My name is Aram. My name is Dylan. We can't tell you our last names, or even what city we are in. If we did, they could find us. And that would be the end of this show. We're sending this message so that more people can learn the truth. Maybe then, somehow, the human race can survive until the Andalites return and rescue us. Until then, we will be discussing each book in the Animorph series as I read them for the first time. And I'll be guiding this journey as I reconnect with stories I read a long time ago. Welcome to Pazdeek. Book three. Book three. The Tobias book. The first Tobias book, because we're going to... There's 54 standard books, like not including the Megamorphs and the Jews. We're going to get several for each kid. I honestly didn't know where this one was going to go because it's clearly way too early for them to be introducing the weird shit yet. And I just like... I wasn't 100% sure where they were going to go with this one based on that title. It's too early to bring in a lot of the really weird shit. There's a second where I just thought this wasn't going to be the Yerks again. But again, we're, we're setting things up. So that isn't a complaint. It was just in the setup. She managed to bring across that like momentary confusion so hard that it threw me off the trail. And I respect that a lot. This one was a lot... Uh, cleaner in terms of a summary because we weren't dealing with the plot as much. This was one of the first times where we got some really like horrors of war. Like we're currently dealing with shit. It's a lot of inner monologue. This was mostly a lot of like, we're with Tobias and we figure out more about how he feels and his struggle with his humanity. But the rest of it was just basically a, a mission. Yeah. And the mission was real straightforward. At one point, a invisible ship flies past Tobias, and he's like, that's fucked. Uh, don't like that. And this ship is massive. Uh, it turns out to be effectively a freight truck. They are coming down, draining water out of a small mountain lake. They have controllers who are park rangers that are just clearing the area and forcing campers further away. There is one point where they legitimately just send out Hork Bajir and they're like, no, just kill him. If you can bring him in, I mean, bonus controllers, but just get the people out. But they are just stealing water and air, bringing it back up to the mothership in orbit and just making sure that everyone stays alive. For a series where you could get away with glossing over so much of the detail, you should respect the intelligence of younger readers, but at the same time, you, there are things you can get away with. You didn't need to say like, oh, no, no, no. The aliens up there, they don't have food and water, so they need to come down and get more food and water. You could have just said the mothership was stocked and everyone would have believed you. Right, or that it made its own food or whatever. They even made a comment of like, huh, so it turns out they're not like at Star Trek level. They don't just have like, okay, cool, cool, cool. 
There's a lot of references. It definitely sets this book in a time period, but it's also how kids would talk. They would just reference their daily lives and their popular culture to make sense of what they were facing. They do some scouting. They grab some wolf morphs to kind of check out what the situation is. They basically confirm that everything's fucked. And the final plan that they land on is we're going to turn into trout. This is the first time where I'm like, okay, you know what? Marco's right. This is a dumb plan. This is an exceptionally dumb shot in the dark plan. You know nothing about the you're going to turn into fish. You don't know how long that journey is going to take. You don't know if there will be air left in the ship like or if it'll be completely filled with water so you're going to turn back into humans and then You don't know if there's three filters on the way in. You don't know if there you mean there's a series of things you have absolutely no idea of and you're just swimming into the dark to get vacuumed up. That is insane. So when there are forest fires, there are the the bucket I don't know if they use planes or sometimes they use choppers where they legitimately take a giant bucket, scoop up some lake water, and then dump it over the fire. This isn't that. This isn't just we brought a ship the size of a small mall down and scooped out. It's a vacuum. They drop a fucking straw into Lake Crystal Lake, and then we just suck it up. Just just hoover it right up. Yeah. And they want to do that as trout, which, fair. Like, I've seen trout put into trout machines and sucked into equal Mm -hmm. vacuums. Clearly, they could survive it. But again, there's probably filters. There's probably a series of things. Maybe they're monitoring what's in the water. There's a whole bunch of stuff they could do with the technology they have. And you literally are going in blind in a morph you've never used before because they're fucking fishing to get the trout morphs. And then to make it a step worse, the ship shows up a couple of times. And then at one point, basically for some reason, it's never really clear why, aside from to raise the stakes, uh, Visser shows up the third time they go, like Tobias sees the boat, then they do scouting, then they do mission. And on the mission, Visser shows up out of nowhere. Don't really know why. He's micromanaging. Which is honestly for his character, great. I'm very much on board for that. It's fitting. But at the same time, I'm left sitting there only just narratively. He can't be everywhere. Why would he be here? Yeah, why would this be so important? It's 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 clearly something that's been going fine. There's been no hiccup. So why are you here monitoring this? The only hiccup, the only thing that sort of makes sense is uh, basically during the final scouting mission, there's the Hork-Bajir chasing a person. And Tobias intervenes, attacks the Hork-Bajir, the, thing get, the guy gets away, and then... Which is Andalite, just screams Andalite. And they mentioned that Visser 3 killed that guy. Like, the Hork-Bajir and the Yurk in his head, that he just killed those two is like a, don't fuck up in front of me again. That does seem to be his management style. Like, don't ever, ever make a mistake or you die. He does it twice in this book. It's got to be tough on the morale of the crew, man. They're hanging in the balance all the time. So they get the trout morphs, and their plan, once they see that this time Visser is around, there's high security, and because, yes, being attacked by a random bird screamed Andalite, they're executing every animal. 
They're running around with fucking disintegration rays, just smoking deer, blasting birds out of the air, killing every animal that goes by. And they stop and go like, fuck, we're not going to be able to get close enough to turn into trout. So their master plan, the brilliant idea, which is like so clearly driven by momentum. Like we're here, we can't, we're not going to get a second shot at this. We got to do something. Because they had school. We got to go to school and I got a thing with my parents tomorrow. They couldn't get their schedules right in the middle of their battle plan. They're like, well, look, you know, I've got choral on Friday and you've got marching band. So what we're going to do is we're each going to turn into trout one by one. And then we're going to do a reverse prey situation. And Tobias is just going to throw us into the fucking lake. Of course that works, but then they get sucked up and then they realize like our entire plan was we're going to get in the ship through the water system and then we're going to get out inside the ship and we're going to take down the cloaking mechanism while it's over the city and everyone will see it and there will be footage of it and they'll be like, holy shit, and they won't be able to cover it up and everyone will know the Yerks are here and then we can mount a real defense. And then they got inside the water tank and everyone went... So it turns out the water tank's actually not connected to anything else. We don't have a way to get out of here. So we're absolutely definitely going to die in here. Tobias, do whatever you can to, like, make our lives matter. We're going to die here. They even get into, like, because, like, Tobias has a massive crush on Rachel. And they even have the little, like, hey, Rachel, I, I never got to tell you. And she just goes, I know. Do what you have to do. In the first episode, I told you Rachel was going to be the soldier. What did I tell you, man? Yeah, 100%. Rachel does not give a fuck. No, she's ready for the fight. She's here to ruin the Yerks, and if she dies in the process, so fucking be it. Yeah, I really do like her the best, I think. And then it turns out the entire thing just works out on sheer fluke of Tobias notices that, like, they kill a second controller, the Visser does, because a stray shot at Tobias hits the ship. They even mention how it's like the damage is superfluous. Like it doesn't matter. It's like a dime-sized hole in the hull, which actually in like a spaceship could be fucking massive because of the way pressure works, but whatever. Sure. He kills this guy. Tobias even gives one of my favorite writer cop-outs. Um, I'm not even going to tell you what happened. That's going to be a horror that lives with me until the day I die. There's a couple times she's done that already, where if it's too graphic, she's just like, look, I'm not going to sit here and describe a disembowelment for 14-year-olds. You're just going to have to figure it out yourself. Just trust me, it was bad. Yeah. So Tobias, realizing at this point, now that they've figured out that it's a bird, they're just killing every bird. Including that one bird that he's like kind of fancied as a bird. We'll get into Tobias's actual, like, arc in a second, but he just goes and sits on top of the ship and then just waits because they can't shoot him. That's exactly what you do. What are you going to do? Which, again, a terrible move because if it turned out that he was actually an Andalite. Putting yourself in Visser's shoes, if you're making reasonable decisions, then the next thing you do is one of two things. You either go like, all right, Andalite, I can wait two hours. Right. You just wait him out. Now you've taken out an Andalite. It's a bird. Option two is you're a spaceship, go up. Into space. There's just a point where he'll die, and it's fine. Right, you make a sharp bank. Instead, they scramble, they launch this massive attack, they manage to accidentally destroy one of their own fighters, and Tobias attacks a random controller, steals its gun, takes the gun. This hawk 
with a gun in its talons, flies up and shoots a laser beam in just an arc through the bridge of the ship. Which is great. On the way down, it clips a helicopter, which cracks open the tank, which lets the other four fall out. They get into bird morphs before hitting the ground. They all make it away. And that's sort of our end point. A really spectacular end point where they were much more successful. Well, in some ways. They were much more successful than they deserved. Right. But at the same time, they did not accomplish. Like No one saw it. They got no more ground because no one saw it, but they've continued fucking up everything. And also, like, you know, again, maybe they've got 12 of those ships and that just, like, sets them back a little bit, right? But maybe they only have one. But even one. then, like, think about, like, let's pretend that you in your household use all of the water that you could have. You're at sure. maximum supply. Now, let's say there are 12 ships. I reduce your total water by 8%. That takes shorter showers. It's going to be a bummer. You got to take shorter showers, but like how much shorter? Like how much of your water supply is that? How much do you got to shave out of like drinking water or like cooking? Because you can't take it out of coolant and you can't take out of certain things that just need a set amount of water. Yeah. And the Yerks live in pools. Right. So they need a shit ton of water. It didn't even occur to me when we were reading this that it was for the mothership in orbit. I saw that and immediately went, oh, this is how they got the pools. Yeah, I bet it is too. I'm I'm sure it was also used for that. It makes sense. This was useful. It was just an actual strike against the Yerks instead of being a fundamental rallying point for the humans. Which also will just draw more attention to them, will make it a higher priority on Visser's list. But again, like you said... Visser's dumb. So this went to shit because Visser is dumb. If someone else had been in charge, I think that's why he needed to be there. Because Kay Applegate knew if there was someone else in charge, they would have been efficient and everyone would be dead. They had to put the Visser there to give a reason for the plan to be bad. Except, Aram, this is going to be my little sort of, not even a spoiler, we're going to call it a teaser. Okay, fair enough. He's Visser 3. They are numbered, like, down. The higher your number, the lower your rank, right? Right. Like, Visser 5 has to take orders from Visser 3. And what we're doing here is we're just setting up over and over again. Visser 3 can't handle his job. So, like, yeah, you're 100% right. He is stupid. He's incompetent. He doesn't know what he's doing. And we are absolutely just setting up if someone else was in charge. Maybe things would go better. Very smart of her because, again, it does strain believability a little bit to think that these kids could keep getting away with this. But if your enemy's dumb and makes really impulsive decisions that crash three ships, perfect. That's That, that actually is going to work great. Not to mention a, another wonderful thing that she's doing here that we sort of touched on a little bit is – it strains credulity that the kids will keep leading a successful war against the Yerks, but they aren't. The things they've accomplished are interfering with a Yerk pool. They didn't destroy it. They didn't damage anything. They freed maybe a couple people. They basically ran through a store, did like a quick TikTok dance, threw shit around, and then ran out. And then in the next book, they sat in on a meeting. Right. 
Like the only information, the only real intel they got was one that the controllers can resist control if they really fucking try hard enough. And also, nobody likes Visitor 3. Everybody thinks he's a big fuckwit. (laughs) That's what they came out of that with because that book ended with them being captured and receiving no actionable intel. Right, exactly. There's there, that's what I was about to say. Is it good information? Sure. Is it actionable? Absolutely not. There's nothing they can do with that. And they almost all got killed. So we talk about this in terms of like, should they be able to wage a war? No, but they're not. They are legitimately showing up, being a little annoying, and then leaving. That puts it in a great situation where even like this mission, as it was was supposed to be them getting onto the ship and disabling the camouflage and dealing this huge blow to the Yerk's ability to act stealthily, at which point it turns into a war, an actual invasion, as opposed to this, like, really subtle infiltration. That would have been fantastic. And that is not what they did. (laughs) Like, this success is a failure. Well, it's not, I mean, again... We don't know how much this set back the Yerk's plans. If there's one of these ships, it's huge. If there's two or three of them, it's still huge. Like, Here, let me give you a hint. There's 51 books left. Right. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, look, <laughs> it's also, you know, good to keep your enemy guarded. Keep him off his toes or on his toes, off his feet. Fuck with him. Fuck with him real good. Something with toes. Yeah, I got you. Cut off one of his toes. Exactly. (laughs) Even that doesn't work. He has hooves. All of that is just background in this case because this entire book was actually about being queer, basically. Yes. This was very much like, it's a flawed metaphor, but there is such a fucking trans analogy in this book. And I know that wasn't what she was writing, but it is there. Anytime you write something about feeling trapped in a body that isn't yours, yeah, yeah. it's going to hit with people. I'm sure there's a lot of kids who were reading this and they're like, this is exactly how I feel. Because the entire thing is just Tobias dealing with the fact. One of the things that they keep coming back to is food. We find out that the way Tobias has been eating has been Jake basically stealing scraps from dinner, bringing them up a little plate and setting up a little Tupperware with like a little bit of like... The saddest picnic ever. Whatever meatloaf patty his mom made and some mashed potatoes and green beans. And Tobias goes in and has a moment where he's like, I don't know how I'm going to... I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to tell Jake that I can't eat mashed potatoes and green beans. I'm a bird. It's meat or nothing. And also this cold meat isn't doing it because my brain wants to be eating warm, living meat. Because animal brain does. His yeah. human brain does not. No. he's He views that as a failure or surrender to the hawk, a point where he is less of a human being because he's doing the thing. It's also just physically horrifying, which is the part that really – like that, that's the part that really messes with me when I read these. The idea that – Okay, I have to give in, but that 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 my humanity would be like repulsed by this action, even though the other brain is really into it. That would that would be very damaging, I would think. Birds of prey don't eat gently, and it's something that she brings up: is that it's not just warm meat; it's not a fresh kill. A lot of birds of prey attack, pin down their prey, and eat. <laughs> 
the killing is secondary to the eating. Yeah, the killing is just a side effect from the eating. I think it's after his first little scouting mission to the lake. There's a point where Tobias entirely just, he's flying around and trying to have like a nice day. And the bird brain just wins and he just kills a rat. He gets a couple of bites deep before boy brain kicks in. He goes, holy shit, I'm not supposed to be doing this. And he tries to kill himself. Outright, just like tries to, he goes to the mall and he tries to fly into the sliding door. And then when that doesn't work, he goes through the mall and tries to pivot like up and just slam into the skylight. And Marco saves him. Yeah. With a baseball. Throws it through the skylight. That was the most unlikely thing to happen this entire book. But good job, Marco. Tobias is just so sad. We get his whole parental situation in this book. The reason that he gets to be a hawk and it doesn't raise too many radars is that he was an orphan ship between his aunt and uncle who got divorced and now live on opposite sides of the U.S., so he just does the play them off each other thing, tells his aunt that he's living with his uncle, tells his uncle that he's living with his aunt, and then they just both aren't looking. Right, and they don't talk to each other, so, yeah. you know, clever. That'll work for a while. There is a point where it won't. <laughs> yeah, no, it can't work forever. He's a child. Yeah. They have to account for him at some point. His entire situation is just compounding, like, the idea of, yeah, you know, this sucks. And also, it's fine, though, because no one misses me. What does it matter if I was a person, if I didn't take up room in anyone's life? They put a really nice bow on it in that the entire book, there is another hawk, really kind of an uncomfortable, like weird romance element to it. Like they, they acknowledge that like hawks don't make friends. They just mate. But they can woo a bit, you know. But there's another hawk that he just keeps running into and he starts off the book. Like he enlists Rachel it's Deal and Dan Hawks used cars. He has a hawk, a live hawk as a mascot, just in a cage. Right. The revenge plot that Kay Applegate throws in to the beginning yeah. of every book so she can punish someone she doesn't like. Yeah, this time used car dealerships. <laughs> and Tobias flies in, scares everybody back for a second, uses that delay to put the code into the combination lock because he's just stood back for a while and used his hawk eyes to watch the guy put the combination in. To lock the bird. I love that. And he just sets a bird free. And then he spends that entire time, every once in a while, he sees the bird. And the bird is clearly, like, giving him, like, hey, you should come hang out, eyes. And also, his brain is going, yeah, I'm a hawk. I should, I should just do the hawk stuff with the other hawk. And the thing they finally settle on is the reason Tobias gets away at the end of the book is just they, are, they recognize that that red-tailed hawk is an andalite. And so while Tobias is getting away, they see her, the other hawk who has just made this area her territory, and they kill that bird. Yeah, in a very sad way. They, like, fry off one of her wings, and she spirals to the ground. There's even talk afterwards where, like, should we go, you know, get her? And he's like, no, she'll be eaten by wolves or raccoons or perhaps another hawk. He just kind of accepts it. He's like, no, there's no life for her now. Her wing's gone. Like, No. Like, she just needs to die, which was very sad. It is, but it's also where he needed to end up. 
because the end thing, the thing that they end on, like the, the first lines was my name is Tobias, a freak of nature, one of a kind. His entire thing is I'm fucked up and I shouldn't exist. But then we end on like him coming to terms with it. Like I am both a person and a bird and that's just how it is. I want to know a couple things. If an Andalite remains in a form for two Earth hours, as it worked out, do they get stuck? Yes. So they also can be trapped inside their yes. animal forms. And that's how they must have found out that you can be trapped inside your animal forms because it happened to them. Okay. Right. Tobias's whole thing, like the reason they kill that bird is so that they can have the conversation where he has to sit there. And he has that statement of like, no, we're not going to do anything. We're not going to find her. We're not going to bury her because... She's just going to be eaten. Like, that's how hawks go. Like, the body isn't there. There's no way. It's been several days. But, like, also, I'm sad about it. Not to mention, like, if he had gone there, his human part is sad about it. His bird part probably would have been like, well, might as well eat her. No, her body will be eaten by a raccoon or a wolf or another bird, maybe even another, another hawk. That's the way it is. That's the way it is for wild animals, Tobias, not humans. Yeah, I know. That's how I know you're wrong, Rachel, at least partly. I am a human, yes, but I am also a hawk. I'm a predator who kills for food. And I'm also a human being who grieves over death. I knew I was human when I realized how sad I was that she was killed. See, a hawk wouldn't care. If she had been my mate, I would have missed her, been disturbed, but sadness, that, that's a human emotion. I know it seems strange, but I guess only a human would really care that a bird had died. I have to live as a bird. That is where I am. But also, I am still Tobias. I am not give Accepting that I am a bird is not giving up on the fact that I am a person. Which, again, interferes with our sort of uh, queer analogy there, in that it creates this weird sort of pseudo-closet where you've accepted that you can't be the person that you know you are on the inside. And this is why I come back to she was not writing a trans narrative. And also it should not be taken as a direct analogy because that is not the ending you would put in that story. Agreed. But also there's plenty of people who have to stay in that closet. They don't have a choice because if they stepped out, their lives would be in danger. Their entire existence could end. That is a decent analogy there. Like I could see the fear. I, again, not on purpose, but it does run parallel. Because the books are so small, because they're so, like, contained, up to this point, the real sort of chops that Applegate gets to show are just, let me build this world out a little bit. Let me show you some of the crazy fucking sci-fi horror beats I can give you. Let me, let me do a couple little body horror things. God, I'm not even sure how to classify it. It's just a, a nicely put together world, but it's very phenomenological. This was the first time where you go like, okay, you can do character work. You can do like larger, like meaningful personal narratives as well. Yeah. Every time she jumped into the kids thinking about themselves as animals or struggling with the animal brain or the instinctual reactions that animal would have, that's when she's on her best writing. Mm -hmm. So this book really was a way to showcase all of that because she's clearly been thinking about this for some time. Obviously, this is no book gets written like in one go, but I think the first of these books came out in what 94 and the last one came out in like 98. Wow, 
That's actually amazing that she wrote like 60 books in four years. I think there were only like 10 or so that were ghostwriters. Well, I did read about how she said that she had a team of writers working with her, but she was like the director. 96 to 2001. Uh, so it's five years. That's 10 books a year. The following books in the series were ghostwritten. It's like 25. It, honestly, it's like the entire back half. Right. Gotcha. When she just got rich and was like, okay, I'm going to sketch it out. You guys do the details. It's the last two that she wrote herself. But 25 onward is not K.A. Applegate directly. Which is which is sensible. I mean, if you get like a yeah. big story like this, it's probably good to have other people in when the world gets that large. That makes sense. The only books fully written by Applegate after 25 were after, sorry, number 24, were 26, 32, 53, and 54. And all of the Megamorphs and Chronicles books. So it was one of those things where, like, she got the bulk of it done and, like you said, outlined all of it, set up what needed to happen. But then, like, once we hit the back half of the series, it is director Applegate and the many, many writers. <laughs> Which is honestly a really cool way to do something like this. Yeah, as, as I have learned from trying to do creative projects, you never want to be a voice in isolation. You always want to have additional input. The project always gets better. The only complaint I really have at this point is, and like this is me picking hairs. This is just something I would like both because, you know, I would enjoy it more as a product and also would make this show easier. <laughs> uh, I would love to have a little bit more continuity. Sure. We talked about this a little bit at the end of uh, book two, but I have no idea what the plot of the next book is. Like, they they don't have a lead. They could, I guess, follow Chapman again. The Yerks are getting increasingly frustrated, and eventually, like, that sort of shit leads to the Visser making mistakes. It's very contained because, obviously, the kids have no way of knowing what's going on, so I think were being kept like this is the perspective of the kids. This is what they know, which is good for creating little contained stories, but it is frustrating. We can't get that omniscient view where we pull out and see a bit of the plan. Part of why I keep referring to Rachel as very much like a soldier is that she isn't the general. She isn't a warrior who is going in there and this is my battle plan. She is angry after last book and is on board to kill these monsters. And that's it. Yeah, she wants revenge. Marco still isn't 100% on board. And honestly, I liked Marco a lot more in this book. Agreed. Because he's starting to get into territory of like, when he's pushing back, he's right. He was completely right this whole book. He's an asshole about it. Part of the problem he ran into was just he was pushing against Tobias, who at that point was immovable. Like he was dealing with too much shit to be spoken to rationally and everyone else jumped in on moral grounds and they hit a point where like, you know what, Marco? You're, you keep saying you want out? Fine, you're out. Don't fucking worry about it. We're going in the morning, all right? And they go around like, yes, yes, yes. Marco, no. We go in the afternoon. If all, all of us are gone from school in the morning and in the afternoon something goes wrong at a Yerk site, they know who we are. 
because he's so paranoid and so negative, he's always thinking of consequence, which they are not. And he yeah. was incredibly helpful this time because he was dead right. So fundamentally correct. Jake takes a real back seat, which is a fantastic thing to see. He is the tacit leader in that he has to sign off on the plan, but he even makes reference to it. Like, this was Tobias's show. He called the shots, and Jake was just, at some point, was just like, you say you're not a leader, but, like, take it, man. You're in charge here. Tell me where you need me. It's kind of like when someone else takes control of the Avengers, but Captain America's there. Like, he's not in charge maybe for that mission, but he's still kind of in charge. And then Cassie is Cassie. That phrasing makes it sound dismissive, but I think Cassie's character is phenomenal. I don't think there's a huge amount of evolution in her over time, aside from, like, we're going to occasionally challenge that, you know. You sit there and you're very comfortable in your little, like, we should help people, you know, do the right thing, that sort of... She's the moral center. But we're at war. So, like, we're going to have to make calls. Yeah, you you need to learn how to make compromises. Yeah, so we'll get stuff like that. But at the same time, she is the character that very much is where she is. And she should be. Yeah, and she's kind of happy to be there. Yeah. Like, I think she has the, the least inner turmoil mm-hmm. of all the kids. She just has to face situations and, like, challenges to her morality. The next book. This is one where I specifically don't want you to know anything about what's happening going in. You don't want me to read the book? What part of going in did you miss? Well, but like, how can I not like look at the cover? I mean, like, don't look it up. Don't read the summary because there's some stuff that's going to get given away. Like, it's Cassie. There's a dolphin on the cover. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I think I have seen that. I do. I do realize there are going to be dolphins. This is a very important book. All right. Awesome. And I think you're going to really, really like it. I do like dolphins. Yeah, and they do a lot of cool stuff with the dolphins, but honestly, the dolphins are not the important thing here. There is, like I said, this book is a big deal. Okay. And I think you're going to be really fucking pleased with it. All right, well, I've got it loaded up, so I will read that this week. Yeah, and then we'll, uh, I don't know, probably get another one of these out in the new year. Absolutely. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about with that book? The only thing is that, like, you can... No, you know what? No, no, I don't. I don't have anything else to add right now. I'm gonna hold that. The only other thing worth mentioning is just the uh, the fact that you mentioned how good Applegate is at talking about you know being the animals. The fact that one of the major threats to their safety uh, during the time where they were in Wolf Morph, when they were going in to first do their little reconnaissance, was the fact that Jake had turned into a male wolf. And specifically, Marco had to be the female wolf because they realized that if there were two males in the pack, yes. they would fight. And they Marco lost the coin flip. They are st- very standard, like, ooh, I don't want to be a girl. And yeah. Was like, oh. I kind of rolled my eyes a bit at that part, yeah. And to be fair, they have the whole conversation. Like, come on, it, it, like, we could both be male wolves. It'd be fine. I can get control over the morph. And I don't remember if it was Rachel or Cassie. Probably Rachel, because it's a little bit more aggressive. But basically, just goes like, you and you and Jake butt heads over who's in charge as humans. Do you really think you're going to beat out the wolf brain for that? You know, when I read that, I was like, does that really solve the situation? Because, like, what if Wolf Jake wants to mount Wolf Marco? Like, what do you do then? 
yes, that is a very reasonable question if we're dealing with this in real life, but that is also a question we're just not going to fucking no, deal with. No, we're just not going to go there. Right? But like, it's the first thought I had. Like, like if you can't, it's, it would seem like at least you're having similar male impulses, right? Like that seems to be easier maybe to get a handle of than I am not just going to change species, but I'm going to change sexes. Uh, I guess they're just rolling the dice though, whatever they do. They are honestly just guessing most of the time. (laughs) And also, like I said, there's a lot of stuff where we're just going to brush over it because it is a kid's book. And also quite frankly, it's not interesting. Right. It isn't. I would agree. Like the little love angles they've brought up, I don't care about. You see it a lot in a lot of conversations around like fantasy, especially when Game of Thrones decided that they were going to put like sexual assault in like every other episode. Like, oh, it's more realistic. Yeah, it's re- One, no, not really. That's it isn't that realistic. And also these kids are turning into wolves. That's the line you want to draw in terms of realism. Yeah. It isn't going to introduce anything relevant for conflict. It's just going to add page count so that we can talk about two 14-year-old boys who are trying to not fuck each other while they're dogs. It would be very weird. do that. Yeah. It's weird enough when they're just talking about, like, being attracted to each other. I'm like, "Eh." (laughs) like, all right, whatever. I was 20 when the first book came out. Like, I am very far separated from my teenage years. I find it really funny that the major threat they came across in wolf form was they were running low on time. Like, Tobias, who's a hawk, he has infinite time and is actually useful for brute, is occasionally coming down and going like, guys, why are we stopping? Why do you keep doing this? Jake just keeps peeing on things. Right, because he keeps scent marking. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone else is trying to figure out, like, did you, did you, just have like a big fucking soda before we came out here. It's like, no, I don't think so. Does it carry over like that? Jake, you're sent, you're, you're marking your territory. I'm going to keep doing that though. Cause I, I, I have to. Which was a bad decision because that brought them in direct conflict with another group of wolves that were already there. And then they did such a good job of foreshadowing that by having Tobias fuck that up first. hundred percent point where Tobias is out circling, uh, watching for issues. He goes back to report into everybody else, lands in front of one of the alpha of the pack and just goes like, hey, Jake, so, uh, hey, Jake, why are you growling? Hey, Jake, why are there five of you? I thought there were only four. And then he flies away from the real wolves that he was trying to have a conversation with. That was great. That was a great moment. It also underlined that he doesn't necessarily recognize them right away. He can't tell that those are his friends. He can't see one wolf from the other. You can see a lot of details, but at some point, dogs is dogs. Yeah, I mean, even to even to a hawk. I also I also like that he does keep track of the time because he can constantly just like look at a guy's watch or look at a bank a clock that's like six miles away. He can always find a clock. Like I said, this was a fantastic book, and we're we're really getting into the point where I think that we're hitting the stride. This is the first time where I was like, I really want to just roll into the next book and like had to kind of pull back and wait because I really am starting to get into the story. Thank you for joining us for Podspeak. Animorphs was written by K.A. Applegate. Our show is edited by Aram, and our theme music is composed by Kai Engel. For more information about us, ways to support the show, and to hear all of the podcasts we produce, head over to deadghostpro.com. And remember, the controllers are everywhere. everywhere.